Welcome to the Readings Podcast, Celebration of Books. I'm Nico Callaghan. In today's episode, a discussion with Simon Holmes Accord, the convener of Climate 200, and the author of the new title, The Big Teal, part of Monash University Publishing's In the National Interest series. As Australia entered its lost decade on climate action, Accord observed that conventional advocacy had become a case of diminishing returns, and that Cathy McGowan's election as a community independent in 2013 provided a template for direct political engagement. The result was Climate 200, a crowd-funded outfit intended to provide the money and expertise to better match the major parties and turbocharge the grassroots movement emerging in 30-plus electorates. Accord was interviewed by Reading's own Mark Ribbo. Here's Mark. Welcome to the Readings Podcast, and thank you for writing this book. I managed to take the weekend off and, and spent a, a really enjoyable day reading it. It was very interesting, and I must admit, my knowledge of the Teals was a bit superficial, and my knowledge of you was a bit superficial. <laughs> All I sort of um, knew about you is you were a guy that had pissed off a lot of people. Um, <laughs> Thanks, Mark, for having me on the show. I really appreciate that. You, you remind me of the... Um, Franklin Roosevelt quote that you judge me by my enemies. <laughs> yes. So tell, tell us how did you start on this journey and what is Climate 200? Climate 200 is a crowdfunding campaign that raised financial resources and assisted community independence at the last federal election. So we had 11,200 donors contributed about $13 million to help 23 community independent candidates and 11 of those, four were re-elected and seven more were newly elected to Parliament at the last election. So a huge success for us. As for me, uh, well, <laughs> the book goes into quite some detail, but, but <laughs> many, many threads come together. But, but basically, I, I had tried change from within the party system to, to try to encourage members of parliament to respond on the right side of history to climate change, climate and energy. They're intrinsically linked. After much frustration, I, I learned that that wasn't going to work. And, and I also learned about the um, the amazing community independence movement. A whole lot of threads came together and Climate 200 was launched uh, very low key in 2019, but kicked up into full gear last year, 2021. And very successfully, as you said, when you talk about you tried to work within, you actually became a donor for uh, Josh Frydenberg and had a number of meetings with him. Yeah, please don't hold that against me. But no, I I, um, I live in Kuyong, been here for 21 years now. And when I started getting interested in politics or rather the power of politics to accelerate or get in the way of what we need to do on climate change. I thought, well, I, I should go meet my local member who at that stage was Josh Frydenberg. So starting around about 2012 or 13, met with Mr Frydenberg and uh, over several years had had many conversations about, about climate and energy. Now, he was quite junior member of parliament. Um, he, he was elected in 2010, so quite junior, but rose very quickly through the party, through the hierarchy, and by 2016, I believe, was uh, maybe even 2015, was, was the Minister for Energy and the Environment, very important portfolio for, for, for climate change. 
So I spent a fair bit of effort trying to convince Mr. Frydenberg to steer the party in the right direction, but unfortunately it kept steering itself in the wrong direction and, and he, to my urgings, ultimately um, didn't like the positions that I was taking publicly on energy and I was I was expelled from an organisation I joined to support him in his um, political future. I think you recount in your book one conversation with Mr Frydenberg that he admitted to you that that climate and energy weren't really his his interest. Yeah, and that was not long at all before he was given those uh, explicit responsibilities in his portfolio. But that's that's the way our parliamentary system works. It's quite strange, isn't it, that the Prime Minister has to put together a cabinet where members are responsible for portfolios that they may have had, most likely, have had no interest or no experience in. Yeah, and that, and that was, yeah, until the moment that he became Minister for Energy, that was the position that Mr Frydenberg was in. And so you say you set up Climate 200 in 2019, which was the election that everyone thought that Labor would win, but they didn't. Did any of your candidates get up in that election? Well, we, we supported Helen Haynes and she got in. We're only a very small part. We can't yeah. claim credit for that. Her community ran an amazing campaign. But this, this community independence movement started long before I got involved, started long before Climate 200 got involved. It really goes back to Indi, the community that Helen Haynes is from, and her predecessor, Cathy McGowan. Cathy was chosen in a community process that started in 2012. So the, the movement's a, a full decade old this year. But I saw that process as can do first with Cathy McGowan and then with Karen Phelps in Wentworth when she won that by-election. And, and then from, from 2019, we got to see um, Zali Stegel in Parliament. Back to 2019, we supported a number of candidates uh, that were running in this community independence model. Helen was successful. Karen Phelps, unfortunately, just missed out. And a number of independents like uh, Oliver Yates in Kuyong gave it a really good shot, but it was um, it was early for the movement. But that was an important stepping stone to the... Um, quite stunning victory of uh, Monique Ryan in in uh, Kuyong this year. Yes, that was amazing that Monique's um, win. So you weren't disillusioned in two thousand nineteen. You thought it was the kick in the guts to feel that the momentum was on, that that momentum was going to result in a change of government and one that could uh, that that would start responding appropriately or begin the journey to responding appropriately to, to uh, the threat of climate change. Uh, so to have missed out by one or two seats, I think the, mar- the margin was was at two seats in the, in the previous um, parliament, um, I mean, it surprised everyone. It surprised, it surprised Scott Morrison. I think it surprised people like Josh Frydenberg especially because they thought that they were next, you know, they, they were only a small number of years away from being... Prime Minister of Australia. Yeah, so I think a lot of people who worked for the climate election in in 2019 and then were unsuccessful were were, were quite discouraged uh, at the end of it. But but really, we shouldn't... I mean, politics is so binary, right? There's no prize for coming second. There was a lot of good stuff done and a lot of of good signs for a climate election in 2019, but coming second uh, meant coming last. Mm. Yes, it would be interesting to know... What would have happened if the candidates you were supporting had been successful? Because you you make it quite clear in in the book that these people you support aren't your candidates, in spite of what the Murdoch press and the Liberal Party said about you. 
there was a lot of disinformation during the campaign. And one thing I learned is how the Liberal Party and the Murdoch media, you know, this is this is no surprise to most people paying attention, but they they work in cahoots to spread messaging that is in the favour of the Liberal Party. So much of what was in the media during the election campaign, and in fact, almost all of what was in the Murdoch media during the election campaign was misinformation. So part of the book was to set the set the record straight and have a clear explanation of who we are and how we operated. One of the big themes of this movement is we didn't start this movement, we don't control this movement, we are just one player in it. And what happens everywhere is that community independents have popped up. And I think there were about 29 communities that, that had community candidates at the last election. There, there have been independents in parliament before, but what we've seen since Indi pioneered this model in 2012 is a nonpartisan group comes together and looks for the best possible candidate they can find across their community, not someone who's come up through the party system, done their time as an advisor or on within a party, but people who are fresh to politics, who don't care about, don't care for the political parties, but rather are keen to represent their community um, and have have a direct link between themselves and their voters rather than have this hierarchy of branches and factions uh, and parties. To short-circuit that, the community comes together, they select someone, and then the community backs them in and runs a strong campaign. And we saw saw that around uh, around the country um, with, well, there are about 23 that we supported, and each one of these started within the community selecting the community member, we came in after to approach them saying, okay, how can we help turbocharge your campaign? And um, the primary way of doing that is with donations. Yes, it's sort of, it's fascinating. Simon, you come from a wealthy family, but it's not just you. Oh, not at all. Um, yeah, I, so I represented about 2% of Climate 200's income or donations. We had 11,200 donors from around the country. We had donors in every one of Australia's 151 electorates and a third of our donors were from rural and regional areas. So a very broad base, you know, huge crowdfunding campaign, largest I've been involved in and I've been involved in a, in a few. Uh, but together we crowdsourced about $13 million to, to support these campaigns. So I was a very small part of Climate 200's fundraising. And then Climate 200, in general, provided around about a third of the funding, between 30 and 40% of the funding of uh, of the campaigns that, that were successful. Good example, Monique Ryan's campaign had, had 3,000 donors by wow. the end. It really caught the imagination, not only of people in Kuyong, but around, around the country. So Climate 200 was significant. I think we provided about 35% of the, the dollars for that campaign through, through our donations. But the majority of the funding and 3,000 people were were elsewhere. And then our donation from Climate 200 was from 11,000 people around the country, as I said. To, to characterise it as uh, me running candidates was, was so far from the truth when actually it was the community running candidates. And I helped start a, well, I started a, a crowdfunding campaign to turbocharge those community efforts so they could have a fighting chance against the party machines. Yes, you um, in your book you describe um, the concept of the trim tab. Yourself is playing that role. Tell us a bit about what's a trim tab. I read Buckminster Fuller used that word. Now Buckminster Fuller, I, I saw him um, recently referred to as 
probably the most famous scientist engineer of the middle of the 20th century. By now, he's faded from most people's you know, memory, and, and we remember him for the the geodesic dome, which you know, was was a very futuristic invention at the time. He also had some of the first ideas about the circular economy, um, about sustainability, came up with the phrase spaceship earth and really helped with the techno-optimist approach to sustainability. So he's a really interesting thinker. But he called himself a trim tab. He said, if you imagine the Queen Mary, which was, I think, the biggest ocean liner at the time, it's about half a mile long. And at the very end of the ship, there's a rudder, and it's probably 12 feet long. With all the water rushing past the rudder, it's very hard to steer it. So at the very end of the rudder, there's a thing called a trim tab. It's a little flap, only a few inches long. And the captain of the ship up on the bridge can turn that trim tab just a few degrees and it creates a ripple around it and a low-pressure region that helps to pull the rudder into the direction that the captain wishes. And then gradually the ship, the Queen Mary, turns itself around. So that little intervention right at the end, that little tweak ends up turning the ship around and he saw himself as one individual applying himself at the right place at the right time, just a real strategic nudge. And with that, you could turn the ship around. And he thinks we should all think of ourselves as uh, as trim tabs. Where can we apply ourselves to make the maximum amount of impact with the limited resources that we have? His gravestone just said, it has his name and date and then only says, uh, call me trim tab. <laughs> Contrary to what Josh and um, the press tried to paint you as a sort of puppet master, Trojan horse for the Labor Party, you didn't try to impose, there was no set policies. That- we, we initially thought, let's um, let's have a charter of independence and we'll sign it and, we'll, and anyone we, we support with funding, we'll ask them to sign it and the, and the, and the signed charter would basically assert that we're independent of each other, we owe nothing, we don't expect any access or, you know, no, no, no favours agreement. And even that um, was a red rag to a bull to the independents that we supported. They said, absolutely no way are we signing anything with anyone. Even, and I said, well, even an agreement that promises that they're, you know, that, that's, that, that asserts our independence and said, yes, sir. even that, we're not going to sign anything. So, so and that was, that, was a, that was a really good place to start our relationship with, with them, that every, everyone we supported, um, we, we understood that their value arose from their independence. That's what the communities wanted, independence from, from donors and party systems. Uh, so there was only one responsibility chain, and that was to their community, to their to to their electors. Now, as far as the values, we 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 obviously wanted to support um, campaigns that were values aligned, and we had we had three values. And this this goes to the vision of the kind of parliament we want to see: one that has a majority of MPs that uh, are, are working towards a science-based response to climate change. Number two was rooting out corruption from our political system. And thirdly, um, advancing gender equality and women's safety in Australia. So there are three values. They're not policies per se, just that we want to support candidates who are strong 
strong on that. So we put the word out that we're really happy to talk to community campaigns that share our values. Yeah, we, we, we didn't require anyone to sign on to it, but we were only interested in funding people who um, whose policy platforms already aligned with that. And those, those values are universal within the community campaign that's grown out of the movement in Indi and what we saw in Wentworth and Warringah in 2019. Were there candidates that approached you that you felt you couldn't support? There are a number of candidates who approached us who didn't have a community campaign around them or yeah. I'll tell you what we, what we looked for. Firstly, campaigns needed to be values aligned. That was sort of number one criteria. Secondly, they needed to have a strong community campaign around them. We look at the campaign before we look at the candidate. Are there people who know how to run and win a campaign? It was sort of our mantra that the campaign had to have someone, at least one person, who had run and won a campaign. Everyone thinks they know how to run a campaign, but um, you really want people who have done it before. Uh, you want to know that those people have been running events in the local communities, that people actually turn up to them and that they've got a demonstrated ability to raise funds because we we couldn't see ourselves and we don't want to ever be in a position where we're the fundraising arm of a campaign. We just want to turbocharge the campaign. And then the last thing is we needed to see that a campaign had a path to victory. Sometimes there was a campaign that was interesting on those first two fronts, but we would run some polling and we would look and we'd see that the mood just wasn't on for change in that electorate. So all the things had to come together. There were, there were many, many individuals who approached us. We had to say, go away and come back when you've got a community campaign around you. But there were probably only a handful you know, of, of, of campaigns that we thought weren't, weren't ready. Now, some of those campaigns got 8 to 10% of the primary vote, and that's what we saw in for the independent in Kuyong in 2019. 8 to 10% of the vote, and then we think that they can springboard to a win in 2025 if they do everything right between now and then. You've always been someone who's interested in science and making things, and you got involved in, in climate enterprises through a wind farm in Dalesford, and then you were disappointed with Josh and the Liberal Party response. I was wondering why, say, you didn't approach the Greens or someone like that to support rather than go the route you've gone. I mean, I've interacted with the major parties. I have in various ways supported Labor and the Greens as well. But yeah, my local member was up and coming, showed great promise. And I think you know, we, we all saw his, his um, quick rise through, through the Liberal Party to be within reaching distance of the leadership Look, we had bipartisan support on renewable energy all the way through till about 2012, and that that was the first. That that's what prompted me to first meet with with my local member. It was it was John Howard that brought in the renewable energy target when when the Labor Party dramatically increased the renewable energy target. Greg Hunt on the floor of the House berated the Rudd government for taking so long to increase the renewable target. Just two years later, Hunt was working to dismantle the renewable energy target and, and, and the Liberal Party had flipped from being pro-carbon price to anti-carbon tax, they, they called it. Maybe I was a bit naive, but I didn't see the Liberal Party as being an enemy of climate change. Yeah, now I've read more of the history. There's there's plenty of actually plenty of evidence that both Labor and, and, and Liberal Party, but but more more so on the Liberal Party, have worked against climate action. But at various times the Liberal Party has been very sensible on climate, and I hope they get back there again. I haven't written them off, but gee, they're not, they're not covering themselves in glory at the moment. 
the candidates you supported were incredibly successful. Well, it certainly it exceeded our expectations. After 2019, I put Climate 200 to sleep. It was a very small effort in 2019. We, we raised half a million dollars for about 30 people and I put Climate 200 to sleep at the end and didn't think much more about it. But about a year and a half out from the election, I thought, hang on, I think the planets are aligning for this model. We've, we've seen Yazali Stegel and Helen Haynes have done such a good job in Parliament keeping climate and integrity in the spotlight. And there was a, and there was a mood um, of great frustration in electorates that I understood about the lack of progress on, on those three values I talked about before. So I engaged a couple of political experts to run a review for me to make a recommendation of well, first analysis, what did we do right, what did we do wrong in 2019 and what could we do better? And um, if we had a year to prepare for the election, what should we do? They wrote a great report and I was so happy with it that I started and relaunched Climate 200 in about August of last year. Our goal then was to help two or three communities get a, an independent in, into parliament. We'd hoped to raise something like $3 million to, to support those. And in the end, we, we ended up, as I mentioned before, seven seven new independents in in, in Parliament, and from from thirteen million dollars, we, we were worried we wouldn't get two hundred people. The two hundred in Climate Two Hundred's name is a reference to the desire to have a two hundred people funding the organisation. Um, we ended up with eleven thousand two hundred. We exceeded our expectations, but from about two months out from the election, we could see that there were seven candidates that were on track to win. They needed to run very, very tight campaigns. They needed to be well-funded in order to make sure their message got out in those communities. They needed to have thousands of volunteers and all those things came together. But I think one of the most rewarding aspects of the whole lot is just the quality of the candidates who stood and won. I think it's a real testament to what happens when you don't pick from the normal pre-selection pool that parties have but you pick from the best people available in your community. Every single one of the independents that was elected is an outstanding member, lifting the average quality of those who sit in Parliament on our behalf. Yes, no, I, I had the pleasure of seeing you and Monique Ryan talk at our Hawthorne shop a few weeks ago, and Monique was very impressive. So what do you think the future is? Are you still going to keep on, Climate 200 is going to keep on going? Yeah, after the after the election, we we took um, you know, a couple of months to tie up loose ends and catch a bit of a breather, and then started talking to donors. And um, firstly, there was um, an amazing feeling of achievement that we had collectively. I'm talking with the eleven you know, eleven thousand two hundred donors plus about twenty thousand volunteers uh, throughout the Australia working on these campaigns. Collectively, we'd helped Australia dodge a bullet that we'd helped Australia get on a different path from the US and UK, who I think you know, everyone would agree their democracies are not working too well right now. And there was an overwhelming sense that we needed to continue. You know, so many communities got the representation they wanted. About six communities, the, the community independent came second. And then Kathy McGowan ran, or Kathy McGowan has a group uh, that she, she um, started with some colleagues called the Community Independence Project, and they ran a forum in August and there were people from 100 different electorates around the country wanting to know how they could replicate the success. So all, all of those threads came together to give us the clear understanding that there's a, there's a big future for this movement and, and our role within it. 
Uh, we're currently working on the Victorian election. We're, we're supporting four candidates who have come up through community processes and we're in discussions with quite a few more community campaigns for the New South Wales election, which is next March. Really interesting. Well, thank you, Simon, so much. Many people probably hopefully might be inspired by what you've done. You're still taking donations to Crump? <laughs> we definitely are. We're, we're fundraising, helping to support campaigns in, in Victoria and New South Wales, but we're also planning the long game of increasing community representation in the parliament that will be selected at the next federal election, which could be as early as uh, August 2024, but um, can't be later than May of 2025. We're taking donations, but what I'm hoping from this book is that somewhere uh, some people will, will pick it up, read it, and understand more about the community independence movement and will be some of the people who start campaigns that will uh, deliver MPs into Parliament like of the ambition of the MPs we saw into a new Parliament elected in May. Well, that's terrific. So I recommend to everyone that they do read your book, The Big Teal, published by Monash University Press in the, in the National Interest Series. And at only $20, it's a steal. Thank you so much, Simon. It's been a pleasure talking to you and thank you for all you do. Thanks, Mark. It's been an honour. You can stream previous episodes of The Readings Podcast at our website. We'll also find all kinds of other recommendations for great books, music, film and TV. You can also sign up to e-news or receive our free monthly newsletter, The Readings Monthly. The Readings Podcast is produced by me, Nico Callaghan. The show's music is by Tom Hoskins. All episodes of this show are recorded and produced on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. I'd like to acknowledge traditional owners of this land and pay my earnest respects to elders past, present and emerging. Thank you for listening.